Good morning again. We are uh, looking at Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4 this morning. Um, We are landing the Colossian airplane. We have three more sermons. So that's, we're in that final descent. If you've ever flown, most of you have, that's not the time to get up and move around the cabin. So we're going to have some good stuff for the last three weeks. It's going to be, just be ready and be excited. Don't miss. Um, Where we've been in Colossians, Paul has, um, he's of course welcomed the congregation. He's urge them through prayer to to desire the knowledge of God. He's talked about who Christ is. He's talked about who he is. He's introduced uh, the the idea of a heresy that there's a tendency of of all of us to focus on earthly things. And then where he's going, starting in verse 5 of chapter 3, which we'll look at next week, is uh, sanctification, putting to death, or mortification, you might say, putting to death what is earthly in you. And then the next week, put on but this week, three verses one to four, it's a hinge, it's a door hinge. It's, and what we're looking at is sanctification. That's a big word. Uh, some of you know it well, others it's new. And let me just explain. All it simply means is the process of growing in holiness between conversion and glory. So you hear justification, that's when you come to know Christ. There's more to that. There's glorification, that's when you go home to meet Jesus or he returns. And there's this space in between, if you are a Christian, where our primary emphasis is on sanctification, that is growing in Christ's likeness. And in these four verses, I think he gives us a secret that is very easy to forget about. Often I think the area of sanctification is misunderstood, and even when we understand it in our head, often it doesn't quite get into the heart. So that's the goal of these three discussions, will be to recover and, and, and Recapture what it means. So look with me at verses 1 to 4 from chapter 3 of Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you uh, for this amazing gospel, one that we know is everything, and yet we confess we have so much to learn about. Thank you that you are a gentle teacher. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is here illuminating illuminating these words to our souls, and we praise you that you dwell in us that we are your children, and that we can learn without fear. Amen. I don't always want to do self-deprecation, but something that may be shocking to you uh, is I was not the greatest high school student of all time. There are those people like Sam Scheidler, great student, then there was me. I'm the guy that the teacher thought, oh my goodness, we're going to have just a few jokes. Um, the worst class was senior year, sixth hour Spanish like three strikes for me. Senor Deem. Uh, I did not want to take Spanish. I didn't uh, understand it. Uh, I do remember La Toca La Catara. Anyway, I just have a few memories of Spanish. Forgive me for those of you that are fluent. Again, Sam Scheidler. And, um, but where I was good, I was art. I was in an art class. And I'll never forget senior year art class. Senor Deem 
by the way, she, she's not Hispanic. That's just what Hispanic teachers want, right? I'm American, but I want you to call me senora. It's part of learning Spanish. Okay. She came into my art class, and I remember feeling like two worlds colliding. Like, why are you here talking to her? And I was in the middle of a painting, and, I don't, and then I went on. Well, sixth hour, I go to Spanish class, and she says, come to the desk. And I go up there to the desk. She's like, I figured you out. I'm like, what are you talking about? I know why you're not good at Spanish. Why? Because you're great at art. Your mind's like all, and she did this kind of weird like sound, like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I thought, okay, do I get an A? No. What she's trying to put words to is we have this idea that when your head's in the clouds, you're not really good at things like on earth, right? You're, you, know, you, you, when, you know, when you want to get serious, what you say, get, come on, get down to earth, right? Get focused. That's what she was getting at. And I think that sort of seeps into Christianity. You've heard the term. How many of you heard the term? He, he or she is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Have you heard that before? Maybe that has been leveled against you. You're starting to walk with Christ. You're, you're starting to grow. And someone's like, yeah, sometimes you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Well, I think C.S. Lewis recaptured that by saying this, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. This morning what we're looking at is, what Paul teaches, is when you really have your head on heaven, you will be better here on earth. Another way you might say, if you want to live well on earth, you need to better understand your heavenly citizenship. The way sanctification works, the way you grow in earthly goodness is by better understanding who you are in Christ. I'm saying the same thing in different ways, and that's what we're looking at this morning. Um, I'm going to just unfold the outline as we go, and it doesn't have a nice ring to it, but the first one I want to talk about, the disposition of our soul. I think in order to understand this material, the first thing we have to buy into is that Paul is unpacking or unveiling this idea that if you are a human being, you have something that's your soul's disposition. It's the way all humans function. And we have to buy into that before we understand how Christians then can grow in the process. And he says it twice. In verse 1, he says, seek, pause, that's what he says, seek. That's an imperative. Do this. Seek. In verse 2, he says, set. Set your minds. The NIV actually takes that verse uh, for verse 1 where it says seek, and they decided to add set your hearts. That's how they, dis- they translated it. Are they wrong? No. Uh, the word seek uh, sometimes in modern language sounds like look. Hide and go seek. Right? I actually toyed with the idea of that being the title of the sermon. I thought I'd forget that. But whereas really what Paul is saying is look with your heart. Seek. And what he means by set your mind, it's a synonym for him. It's, it's set your entire disposition on this pursuit. And what's being, what's being unpacked or discussed in that point, we have to grasp, is that everything you do, every thought you have, every goal you set, every good thing about you, every negative thing about you, finds its root in what it is you seek. And the Bible knows that about you. The Bible doesn't just want you to take who you are and throw on morals. Jesus is after your heart. Theologians call this the affections of the heart. Jonathan Edwards wrote a treatise on religious affections. And, and the idea is that 
everything we do really starts in the seedbed of the soul. And so we have to grasp that before we even begin the discussion, because if you don't think that, then it leads to these kinds of comments. I don't really have a problem with that. I just thought that. I don't really have a problem with this. I just do this from time to time. And then when you want to grow, you figure out, how do I just do better things? And the Bible is saying, no, no, we're going to go to the heart to get to the outward fruit. That's the goal of what we're looking at for sanctification. You have to go to the heart. So do you believe that? Um, I don't know that our world has fully moved away from it, but, you know, in the past, the power of positive thinking, the idea of what your mindset is, dictates your actions. That's been around. Um, even things like rational, there's a psycho, psychotherapy called rational thinking. It's, a, it's like the stepchild to cognitive behavioral therapy. They're very similar. They came out at like the same time, and there's a lot of good in them, but cognitive behavioral therapy would say something like this. Uh, I, so I have a fear of spiders. So if I walked into my office, no one do this as a prank, and I saw a spider, I would have an irrational fear. I'd leave. Maybe I'd call a psychotherapist and say, I need, a, I need an appointment. They would say, sure, bring your money. And I would sit down, and they would say, what was the inciting incident? Well, I saw a spider, and I became terrified. Okay, they'd have me write that down. Terrified over a spider. Now, what was your fear? That it would kill me? Really? Like, that it would bite me? That it would crawl on me? So you have to start rationally picking apart this thing. Then they would have you rank your fear level. Like, on a scale from 1 to 100. I was at 100. It was going to, it was, okay, I was at 98. If there were two, I'd have had about 100. And then they want you to start interacting, like, what's the truth? Well, spiders don't kill me. This was a wolf spider, the ugliest kind. They have no venom. I don't think they even bite. Like, you get rational, and that's supposed to calm you down, right? And then you re-rank yourself. Now I'm at like a four. I can go back to work. So what they're trying to do is get you to be rational and cognitive, but the reality is they recognize there's core beliefs, there's underlying fears that you can't get to. And this process in their mind helps you. Now, I'm not bashing that. I'm not even promoting that. I'm just telling you non-Christians even have embraced this idea that behind our functions in life are inner feelings, emotions, and things that we're seeking. They would tell you, and I have read a bit on this, that they can only help people who would admit their extremes. They can get people who don't want to fly on an airplane to fly an airplane. You know, they can get people who don't want to go on an elevator to maybe go on an elevator. They can't help us love well. See what I'm saying? So there's limits. And so what's the point? The point is, even then, there's a limit because at some level, positive thinking, correct thinking, rational thinking doesn't answer the problem that there's something deep in your soul that you can't get to, that only Jesus can get to. So let's, let's look at the scriptures and see where we find this. And I go to this place a lot. I'll be going to it this fall as we look at the book of John. But there's this place in, the, in John's letter where Jesus is teaching, and many, many people have come out to hear him. And they've listened so long, they've worked themselves into a hunger, and there's no food. So what does he do? You know the story? He feeds 5,000. It's famous. He does a miracle. In other places, other gospels tell us that in that story, the crowd began to think, aha, we should make this person our king. 
And he knows that in their hearts. So he sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee on boats. He stays with this crowd. And then what happens? He leaves at night. And he walks on water. And when they wake up, he's not there. There's no boats missing. They're perplexed. This is John 6. And they go after him. They try to find him. They seek him. They're after him. And it says this. On the next day, or it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And listen to Jesus' answer, verse 26 of chapter 6 of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I want you to understand what he's saying. You ate food, it, it filled you up. What happened the next morning when you woke up? You were hungry. And where was the goose that laid the golden egg? He left. And if that's who Jesus is to you or to us, we have a problem. So Jesus is saying, don't do that. He goes on. Rather, verse 27, he says, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. What Jesus is saying is the same thing that Paul is saying. When you are seeking even Jesus or anything to fill you temporarily, it will fail you and you'll be hungry again and you'll panic only when Jesus is whom you seek, whom you set your mind on, will you flourish. That's the point of this whole passage. That's the point of, of, the, of the gospel. Right? The gospel uh, is telling us that we have been redeemed. We are in Christ. And, and, that's, and that's our citizenship. And so while we're on earth, we are to live by faith out of that reality. Okay? So I want to now unpack what I think the two options are. My hope is that right now you'll at least give me a little bit of I'll go with you a little ways on this idea that you seek, that you set your mind, that everything you do, even the, the things you do, I'm just chilling. I'm just hanging out. That if you really dig down, deep down, there's something that that feeds. Does that make sense? There's some underlying thing. If you can buy into that, then we can buy into this next thing that Paul tells us. There are two options for what you seek or set your mind on. One option is Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. That's one option. The other option is earthly things. That's it. Two options. Christ or earthly things. Now, what are earthly things? Right? I mean, look, look around you. Anything you can touch, taste, or feel. Paul has just spent the latter part of chapter 2 explaining that what's, that what's coming down the pike in Colossae and what comes down the pike for all of us is this tendency to want physical, visible, tangible realities by which we set not only our private lives, but our religious lives, okay? And I want you to realize that they're really no different. Like if you're doing it Hey, I go to church and I follow heavenly things here in my religious life, but privately, of course, it's money, it's status, it's this, this, and this. That's really the same thing. What Paul has already said is, is the problem is the, that religious people will often take physical things and make those the driving force and not Jesus. So for you, it, whether it's secular or whether it's Christ, it doesn't matter. The point is if we're pursuing anything physically, for our well-being, it's, it's bad. It's not going to be good. It's going to be empty. I saw a political cartoon this week. We do this knowingly. It's very scary how knowingly we do this. Political cartoon in the Stillwater paper, 
I'm going to butcher it, but this couple, this is where Dan's like, you should have given me the slide. You're thinking that, aren't you? But I'm going to just describe it. Uh, This couple, I've been watching television, and it, it kind of appears like their son has returned home. And they're sort of, they've gotten up from their television, and they're so thankful. Anyone see this? But the son's dressed like football. And the idea is it's really not their son. It's just college football's returning for the fall. And I see a clap almost. Everyone's getting ready. I know my son, one of my two, just, I love this time of year. The second the, the weather changes, OSU fans, it's futile. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, I'm an OU grad. We, in 2000, like Bob Stoops' second year, we won the national championship. It's going to be a great ride. It's 2018. We haven't won it again. It's, and you know every season it's the same thing. I know I'm going to get up and go and watch the game. And if we lose, I'm going to be down. But if I win, have you ever left a win? And you're all kind of excited and you're realizing like, what? so? It, it, it's a game we play. Not just with football, but in life in general. In fact, in the scriptures they played it all through the Old Testament. Um, God, Yahweh, delivers Israel out of the hands of Egypt, and they grumble. He gives them manna. They're thankful, and then they grumble. They take more than they need. Um, Remember, they get to Sinai. Moses is on the mountain. If you were to walk up, you would see Mount Sinai shrouded in pillars and thunder and crazy things. And you'd look over, and someone would be saying, hey, Aaron, make us a golden calf. That's not good enough. You get into the book of Judges, and, and, and the second things go well, what does Israel do over and over? They do what's right in their own eyes. So God provides them someone to rescue them from the enemy. The rescuer comes, they, they recommit, and then they do it again over and over. And then you get to 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, somebody, some group, part of the population decides we need a king. Like we need an earthly king, like all those other kings. And God warns through Samuel, you don't want an earthly king. Yeah, we do. And it's a stark thing because God says, let me tell you what's going to happen. A, I'm going to give you your king. So you get what you want. But right before we anoint him, Saul, and we bring him on, let me tell you what he's going to do. And God outlines all the things. He's going to make your young men go to war. He's going to make your young women come and serve him. And everyone's doing, just like the child who's spending all their savings on the toy that you know in three weeks is going to be laying on the ground. I want it anyway. And even Samuel, looking at Saul and his height, was a little bit enamored, right? And Saul is a horrible king. When it comes time to anoint him, he's hiding in the luggage, which is the armor. What is it in us that can do this? I know that this thing, this thought, this goal, this passion, this person will not fulfill me, but I want it. What is it about us? Do you see that in your soul? The ability to rationally say, this is bad for me, but yet your spirit, your soul says, but I want that thing. That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul sees. Paul sees this realization that for all of us, we do that. And my fear, brothers and sisters, is that for most of us, Jesus has almost never fulfilled that role, even for a moment. 
That doesn't mean we're not a Christian, but it is very sad to know that with Jesus, who's ruling and reigning at the right hand of his Father, we have all things, and yet we often hear that truth, and we think, that just sounds a little boring. I want a new this, right? So that's one option, earthly things. Why do we do it? I think we do it because um, we like to delude ourselves. We like to be deluded. I, my, I used to hear this story, you know, the power of positive thinking. Um, two boys are twins. We tell this often in our family. They're identical twins in every way. One, one is, however, negative and one's positive. Have you heard this story? So magically, Neil is the negative one. And Paul is the positive one. So this is apocryphal. This isn't a true story. And uh, the parents are like, why is one so positive, one so negative? And they uh, decide to do a study, and the, and the scientists bring them into a room. And they say, Neil, here's your room. And they open the door, and he looks in, and he's negative. Remember, negative Neil. Can you do the mnemonic there? And he goes, and he looks in it, and it's filled with every toy an eight-year-old child could want. By the way, he's eight. So they put him in the room, close the door, and there's a little bit of excitement, like we're finally going to see Neil excited. And there's also this, a little bit of this sadistic side, because we're going to make Paul, who's always positive, kind of negative. Why? Because they open his door, and he can't wait to see his room, and it's full of horse manure. And they just pop him in, and he kind of gallops in, and they close the door. And they're like, what's going to happen? And they let two hours go by. They start with Neil, and they open the door. And Neil's sitting in the corner with a tear in his eye. Neil, what are you doing? And they begin to ask him about, why did you not, why did you not get on this toy, this seat? I don't know, something that goes up and down where you jump a lot, let's say. Because the toys have changed since I heard this story. Well, I was afraid I'd break my leg, you know. Well, why didn't you plug in the PlayStation? That's, that's modern. And play, you know, whatever. I was afraid I'd shock myself when I plugged it in. And they just can't believe it. He couldn't get positive. So they go to the positive Paul's room, open the door. What do you think he's doing? He's flinging horse manure. And they're like, Paul, what are you doing? You can't fool me. There's a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> I've always heard that story. Who should you be? Paul. That's what the world says. Be like Paul. Be delusional. Yeah, two hours in, there's a horse covered by manure that's still breathing. But we love it. Why? Because there's no other option. It's sort of like, I don't know what else to say. I just hate negativity. So here's how I'm going to motivate you with false stories so that you'll just start acting happy. That's the world's view. What is the Bible's view? Or neither. Let's get really happy. Let's go to King Jesus. Let's go to the king. What makes you switch from earthly to heavenly? Paul gives us a few examples, or a few, a few things, not examples, statements. What does he say? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Every commentator I read said this is most likely hearkening back to Psalm 110, among other places. Jesus is ruling and reigning. We tend to think, okay, so Jesus, this is not a spatial thing. He's up and he's literally at the right hand. This is rather a positional phrase. Jesus is in charge. 
Jesus has now ascended. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he is now in charge of his kingdom. He's in charge. That's what, that's what Paul's telling us. And he's saying, what you, what you now have the right to do is live with the one who's in charge, the one who rule and reigns. So here are, go back to 1 Samuel, what do they want with a king, an earthly king? They want someone that'll keep them safe. What is Paul saying? I have someone that will keep you safe. It's fascinating. What you have to begin to do is to realize I'm actually seeking things that will give me life, right? That's what you're doing. The things that I'm pursuing feel have the illusion of life. I remember as a child, you would take a notebook and you draw a little squiggle and you turn the page and it advances and you make like your little animation and then you flip it and you feel like I just created like a moving dog. Anyone do that? It's kind of neat. Okay, you can be an animator. I have a book by Walt Disney or about Walt Disney called The Illusion of Life and I want you to say, please hear me, it's an illusion. The things you are after are an illusion. They perish with use. Why do we then allow ourselves to go in and tell stories like Positive Paul and Negative Neil? Because to let go of those things and cling to Jesus requires something that we don't want to do. Die. We don't want to do that. Right? I don't want to let go of my allegiances and cling to Jesus because that means letting go of him are of these things and trusting heaven, trusting Christ, trusting God to be good. Does that sound like anything familiar? Adam and Eve in the garden, right? What is it? They had everything, and then the, the thought came to them through evil that maybe God isn't good, and so they decided they wanted to go their own way. I was looking at Matthew 22 this week, completely separate from this, and in Matthew 22, Jesus is telling Pharisees, they're interacting. Let me actually turn to it. Um, they're interacting about, the Pharisees are constantly trying to trap them. There's one place where he says, you, you tithe cumin and, and dill, and, and yet you, you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And what this passage un, unpacks is, the Pharisees, by and large, had turned the law into things they could achieve. And we have a tendency. If I could just achieve it on my own, then there's no risk until you get to the weightier matters. And so in verse 30, uh, 34 of 22, one of the lawyers says this, um, teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he says, Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, we don't hear the response here in Matthew, but that has to be very difficult for someone who's like, no, 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 I was kind of more thinking like, you know, read my Bible like for an hour a day. Like, that's what I was kind of wanting. You're like going to these crazy places that I can't do. Love my neighbor as myself, love God with all my heart. And yet that's the point. The law is so big that you have to let go of any illusion that you personally are going to achieve it apart from Christ. Now, the next thing that happens, and this is why I bring this up, Jesus asks the question. It's kind of interesting. He's the one that does this. He says, let me ask you a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, he's the son of David, answers one of the Pharisees. 
Well, how is that then that David, how can it be David if the Spirit calls him Lord? And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is recognizing they don't want to have someone come outside in that requires them to surrender their life. They want a religion that is self-contained, that they can figure out, that doesn't require any difficulty. And that's exactly, I think, a condition all of us borrow from them. That's why when Paul gets to Colossians and he sees that they have this risk of wanting asceticism and human philosophy and elemental principles, all things that perish with use but have the appearance of wisdom. And he's saying, no, 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 Jesus Jesus is your sanctification. Jesus is your life. And so the process of sanctification is more and more living out of that reality. Right? That is the truth of who you are. Now, I want to talk about that reality for the remainder of our time. And we're going to spend the next two sermons on this. I think we get this and we don't get this. So here's what I'm trying to You have to agree with me on one. Here's what I want to recap. You seek something at all times. Now, it can jump around, okay? College football, it's affection, it's food. It can jump around like within 10 seconds. But we're always after something. And there's always something even deeper beneath that that really gets to the core of life. Like, have you ever been so hungry? You're like, I could die. Like, why would you say that? Because you, somewhere deep down, really think that. Okay. Paul says, however, put, do not live by earthly things Set your mind and heart on Christ, right? And I'm going to talk more about why in a second. But before I do, I need you to agree, and you don't, you don't have to nod or raise your hand, that it's possible to do both interchangeably. Like, for example, you're not going to say, you know, last month I was living like my mind was set on things above is awesome. Last week I was living for earthly things. And then next week, I'm hoping to get to the back. back. That's not how it works. It, it can be like simultaneous almost. I'm going to do my best impression of Jim Gaffigan. Where is that in the Bible? Right? Where, Ryan, that sounds great, but where is that in the Bible? That's my Jim Gaffigan. I won't turn to it. I'll just tell you. When I studied for ordination, you would have to learn where in the Bible is this major event and where in the Bible is this major event. And several of them converged in Matthew 16. Two major events in the life of the church happen in Matthew 16. One, Peter and the rest of the disciples acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. So he goes from being rabbi and good teacher and all that to being, we acknowledge you as the, the Christ. You are the son of God. Like they get it. Okay? That's pretty good. And no one else was figuring this out. Secondly, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, on this rock, Petros, Peter, I will build my church. Peter was given a black belt. Like, you're in. You're at an all-time high spiritually, right? Yes. Oh, and Peter and, and others, by the way, Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. Peter with his new black belt, no, you're not. Right? I'm taking care of you, Jesus. And Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. 
black belt melts. The, the whole outfit just melts. That just shows you that right at the height of your spiritual maturity, right there is the depth of your immaturity. Do you see that? That spiritual maturity is not, remember way back when I thought Jesus didn't have to die? It's like right now. And furthermore, I would like to press in on this. I think part of it is Jesus can now say things like that to Peter because Peter is finally at a place where he can hear it because he's grown. Are you at a place spiritually where you can hear negative things? Because your life is hidden with Christ. He is at a place where he can just, I want to live like that. (laughs) Who doesn't want that? Yeah, amen. Okay, only a few of you get to do that at a time. Here's the reality that Paul's outlining for us. I'm going to say the gospel message in these verses. I want them to roll over you. If then you have been raised with Christ, that is not a conditional question. Like, I don't know if this is true, but if it is, that's how we like to hear things. This is rather a rhetorical method. It's saying because. In fact, the NIV says, since you've been raised. The assumption is it's happened. In verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And then the most amazing thing that I promise you, no matter where you are in your brain or mind or heart or how fast you want to get out of here, if you'll tune in for this next sentence, this will almost feel brand new. He doesn't say, when Christ, who guides you in your life, when Christ, who shows you how to live, listen to what he says, you can see it, when Christ, verse 3, verse 4, who is your life. There it is. Here's what I think happens with this kind of message. Some of you are sitting there, and I'm talking to Christians, all of you that confess Christ. Some of you are sitting there kind of going, oh, goodness. There's whole areas I've not given over. Money, relationship, career. That's, that's true, Okay? That's one audience member, no matter what. If you are sort of actively withholding the kingship of Christ from a part of your life, that's certainly an application point. But some of us say, no, no, no. I want to go to Jesus who is, I'm hidden him. I'm, I'm found in him. I'm raised, I'm dead, I'm raised. I get the gospel and I go to Jesus, Why? so that he'll improve my finances, he'll improve my relationships, he'll improve my standing, he'll make me a better preacher, a better pastor, I'll be liked more by you, I'll look better, I'll feel better, blah, 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 blah. Both are wrong. The radical concept being given here is this. You're dead. And now your life is hidden with Christ, and Christ is your life in the story. And any ambition that doesn't flow from that is not going to work. It will fall. Do you believe that? Let me give you an example of this uh, as we close. This is my conclusion example. Um, Paul will go into areas where we need to understand this reality, and he gives us diagnostics. And the diagnostic he chooses uh, as in the putting to death, therefore, is he lists some, some areas that most people would say, oh, that's all bad, of course, but that you may still struggle with. And then in verse 7, in these you once walked when you were living in them. But now, verse 8, you must put them all away. And then he lists 
things that reveal our hearts. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Okay, I'm going to take anger. Where are you angry? Okay, here's, my, here's an example. I've used this before. Um, it's not perfect, but I'm going to do my best in, in about a minute or two, and then we'll pick it up next week. When we're trying to leave our home on time, I often become angry, right? Is that true? It's probably too sensitive right now. Thankfully, we leave church at different times. We have two cars. But now, you could say, okay, Ryan, so you got angry, but it's righteous anger. You're supposed to, God says to be on time. No? Okay, here's the two ways I think of dealing with it. One is, because I'm so committed to being on time, I don't care that I get angry then. I'm going to ignore that part of my life. Because Jesus cares more about being on time. Right now you can insert career and other things into that category. Or you can swing all the way over and go, Jesus wants me to be loving and kind, so I'm going to make sure we leave the house on time by being loving and kind. So I begin to be loving and kind. We pray before we leave. You know, we, maybe I put up little scripture cards on the mirrors of people getting ready. Okay, Because I want to leave on time. Those are the two ways I think we often read stuff like this. What does Jesus want me to do? Die to my need to be on time. How can I tell I'm getting close to the truth for you? Because many of you are going, that's crazy talk. The Bible commands it. Here's the point. Being on time or not being on time have no eternal value. Certainly it makes sense in some cultures to be on time. Some cultures show up three hours late. There's nothing righteous about it. But what is clearly unrighteous is to treat the people you love negatively. And that anger reveals to me a deep, deep need to be on time because somewhere I learned that even though you may not like me, at least if I show up on time, you don't have that one on me or something like that, right? If I show up on time, I feel better. I feel cleansed. I feel righteous, right? That's just one example. Am I going around saying, see, sanctification is learning to be late? No. Not at all. Sanctification is learning to take outward behaviors like anger and wrath and malice or the lack of things he'll talk about in a little bit in the next passage, meekness and humility and patience, and let those trace into my heart the underlying idols that I hold dear, that I say you cannot touch, that prove on some level that even though I am a Christian, I'm in Christ, I have assurance, I believe if I die today, I'll be in heaven. I believe all these things are true of me. Sanctification is saying, but there are still these fibers of the branch that are not plugged into the vine. And I've got to yank them out of whatever they're plugged into, which hurts, and plug them into Jesus for life. I have to begin to surrender areas of my life, not to get along with my family better or a boss or somebody else, but because Jesus is my, is my life. That's who I am. I'm not a guy that's early. I'm not a guy that's late. I'm not a guy, blah, 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 fill in the blank. I am someone who is in Christ, and nothing else defines me. Is that your gospel? If that begins to take root, then we can move into these new second passages that we'll look at and begin to see major areas of sin melt away because of Jesus taking charge. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have created it to where when we are heavenly minded, we become earthly good. 
that when we grasp our sonship and daughtership in you and the, lo- the level of love you have, we can begin to run around freely at the front of rooms knowing that nobody can change my relationship. Father, there is so much freedom to be had. The Bible would become beautiful again. Friendships would become meaningful again. Holiness would become appealing because of our standing in you. Give us that security. Amen.